If I could tell the future and could let you know that this week you're going to receive a dinner invitation, how would you respond? The optimists and party lovers among us might say, that sounds great, I can't wait. The pessimists, or maybe we could say the uh, reclusive types, might say, oh, really? Well, thanks for warning me. And then there's the realists who would point out that we should first consider who is inviting us to dinner, where is the dinner going to be held, and what's on the menu. We really have to withhold any acts, thoughts, attitudes before we know these facts. After learning the details of the invitation, as the realists would point out, our hearts might leap with anticipation. Or we might respond with apathy. Oh, okay. Or maybe the invitation comes and it's annoying or even depressing, depending on who it is, where it is, and what's being eaten. And yet our attitude about a dinner that is to come pales in comparison to the event itself. Have you ever been really excited to go to a dinner invitation and it didn't turn out all that well, didn't go quite like you thought it would? Or maybe on the other hand, you, you really didn't think this was going to be a good event and it turned out it worked a lot better than you really thought. It wasn't all that bad and you really enjoyed yourself, although you thought you wouldn't. Where your anticipation of a dinner invitation really does matter is when there are two invitations given at once and you have to weigh them against one another. Two equally viable, mutually exclusive invitations. And you need to think through both options and make a judgment as to which one is best for you to accept. Proverbs 9, as we make our way there in, our, in the text of Scripture, reveals that there are for us two dinner invitations, and we must respond. There are two hostesses, if you will, that invite you to dine in their separate houses on distinct meals, and each is very anxious that you accept her invitation. And you must choose. Chapter 9 brings the introductory section of Proverbs to a close, and it is a chapter that really summarizes the themes that we have been seeing, these repetitive themes throughout the book. And we're granted, in a sense, this final opportunity in the text of Proverbs to make a calculated decision about the direction our lives will take going forward. We know, again, in context, it's an offer to young people particularly. As the father talks to his son, perhaps Solomon to the young men at court and to his own sons, as he calls them to wisdom. But certainly for all of us in our spiritual maturity, wherever we are in life's journey, there is this constant call to respond to wisdom's voice. But as I mentioned here, in the way that this section is brought to a close before we come on to the formal Proverbs themselves, beginning in chapter 10... We are granted this final opportunity to consider this call, this decision. The wisdom involved in the creation of the universe in chapter 8 that we noted last week, the moral DNA of the universe that we see in wisdom, now comes down to street level once again. And we find, beginning at verse 1 of Proverbs 9, Lady Wisdom's Dinner Invitation. Notice that there, verse 1, wisdom has built her house. 
She has hewn her seven pillars. Here's the location. Now, the typical Hebrew home that was not fitted with stone pillars. Pillars hewn from stone were reserved in the ancient world for temples and palaces. So wisdom dwells in luxurious and a stable home of exquisite beauty. Seven stone pillars hewn out there, and all, well, what do they mean, the seven pillars? This is where commentary work gets about as fun as it is silly at times, but it's amazing what people have suggested these seven pillars are. The seven known planets, the seven days of creation, the seven sections of Proverbs is kind of an intriguing possibility, that these are the seven pillars of wisdom's home. The Roman Catholic Church, leave it to them, they said it was the seven sacraments, even though they weren't invented for a long time to come, but uh, I think we can rule that one out, probably. But, you know, it doesn't say. It doesn't say what the seven pillars are. Of course, the, the number we know, the number of perfection or fullness, something along those lines. But because it doesn't really tell us the text, I think we just say it's seven pillars. It's a beautiful home, is the point. It is a stable, exquisite location. And verse 2, moving inside the home, we learn that she has slaughtered her beasts. That doesn't sound very appetizing, but in an ancient setting it is. This is meat that's being prepared. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. There's an exquisite art form involved in setting a table. I know this because I've done it often. Never out of artistic design, but simply doing what Beth tells me to do. But I know it's really involved. And we have here that kind of a setting. This, this exquisitely prepared food as well and drink to gladden the heart. To do that in a setting of a meal is an art form. It takes some work. It takes some design, some artistry. Wisdom, moral skill, and biblical discernment has prepared a lavish feast. Spread a table with splendor. That's the picture we're to get. This beautiful home, this wonderfully spread table with the best of food and drink there to be consumed. The highest quality. Verse 3. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. So this meal is not only exquisitely prepared, it's meant to be eaten. Wisdom dispatches her attendants throughout the city. They station themselves, it says here in the highest places, probably on the city walls, but whatever, a prominent place within the city, a high-trafficked area, and they declare a message. Here's the invitation, verse 4. Whoever is simple... Let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, wisdom speaking through her attendants, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. So this is not an exclusive dinner. As you might expect, all are invited Above all, it is, who's the person mostly invited, the one that's focused upon here? That's verse 4, the simple one. If, if you've been tracing through the book of Proverbs to this place, we realize there's different types of people who respond differently to the call of wisdom. How does the simple respond? The simple person is that naive individual, morally naive, open to wisdom, open to folly. 
hasn't really decided what path he or she wants to walk on in life. And it's to this individual that wisdom raises up her invitation through her attendance. You simple ones, you who have not decided how life should be lived and where you want to go, you who have not matured yet as you should, come, come to my meal, join at my place. Through her messengers, Lady Wisdom appeals then to the naive and indeed entices them to come to her rich banquet. And just stop on that thought for a moment. Is that not amazing grace? The qualification to participate in this feast is not being a good person. Wisdom does not invite the morally superior to come to her wonderful home and to eat at her table. Nor is the qualification being rich and well-connected or something along those lines. The qualification is repentance. To turn from your indecision and to respond to my invitation to align your life with the DNA of the moral universe. To align your life with the fear of God. This is the qualification. To turn from our innate, natural what we define as inner light and God defines as inner darkness, to turn from that as the motivation and to respond to this call to wisdom. It is a call to repentance, to simply accept wisdom's invitation. This is amazing grace that has been showered down upon us week after week as we've considered the book of Proverbs. This call, this invitation, this grace... Not what you've deserved and not what you've earned, but what God provides as a banquet before you. The only qualification, as Kidner notes, is to recognize you're not qualified. I don't deserve this feast. I cannot buy my way in but wisdom calls me to come freely. It's an invitation that synchronizes beautifully with the grace of God in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It is all of grace. It is His mercy. And our only qualification is to learn, I'm not qualified, that it is by grace alone. Wisdom's invitation is a poetic way of calling us here to commit our ways wholly to the Lord. It is a call to feast on His truth by turning from our sin and by living for His glory alone. Come, eat my bread, drink my wine, and live with insight is her call to us. Now as we bring this section of Proverbs to a close and break off here our verse-by-verse process through the book, this means that weak after week, we have heard this invitation from Proverbs over a period of time. I think the reality that we must face, that I want to face as a pastor, and I think that perhaps some of us here need to face, is the reality that there are some here who have not responded. You haven't been drawn in by wisdom's invitation. 
You stand back on the fringes, you listen, you watch, but you have not responded. Proverbs has spread out the feast before us. Verse by verse, chapter by chapter throughout this book, there is that invitation. God has called us to leave off our love affair with ourselves and with the world and sin. But you still cling to your own wisdom and refuse to yield unreservedly to Christ. The reason that you are here today is the mercy of God. It is His mercy to give you another hearing, another opportunity to respond and to yield to His purposes for you in Christ. In mercy, God says again here today, turn from your godless ways onto the path of God's truth. It'll be a lonely path. It will be counterintuitive. It will be distinct culturally from this world But there's good people on that path. And God is on that path. And you can come into wisdom's home and sit down, not because you deserve to, but because God in His mercy continues to call out to you and says, I love you. Come to me. Today is the day to respond. Enter God's banquet room today. Leave your simple ways, wisdom says, or as you see the marginal reading, perhaps in part, company with simple ones. The Hebrew's not as distinct. And live and walk in the way of insight. There is the call to align our lives with the revelation of God. Now as we come down to verse 13, we'll find there another dinner invitation from another hostess. But we have an intervening section here in verses 7 through 12. So we have wisdom's dinner invitation made to us very clearly. And we have now in verses 7 through 12 kind of a parenthetical section of sorts that deals with two invitees. We're kind of setting aside her call before we face Folly's call to dinner. And here we look at two invitees. First of all, the scoffer in verse 7. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. It's almost like there's a time out here where wisdom talks to herself. The hostess stops and says, there's certain people out there who hear this invitation that really are unworthy of it. Now we've talked about the grace of God, the mercy of God, as He continues to extend His invitation. But there's some who are really to be set aside. You correct a scoffer, and you get abuse. Reprove a wicked man, and you'll just get injured. You reprove a scoffer, and he will hate you. We should recognize here the simple one in verse 4 and the scoffer in verse 7 are two different kinds of people. The simple is the morally naive. I'm open to good or bad. I haven't really decided yet. I haven't really given my life wholly to Christ. I'm not living for Him. But the scoffer says, I'm never going to do that. I want nothing to do with God. He mocks the things of God. He scoffs at biblical truth. The scoffer has made up his mind. He despises God. Now, I don't think that we're to take from this text the idea that we should not 
share the gospel of Christ with certain people. I think in some situations there is wisdom in that, in knowing that it's not wise to throw pearls before swine. We've got to figure out when we're in that situation and when we're not. But that's not the instruction here. Rather, the idea is that there are people who oppose the truth. There are people who hate God. And to call them to repentance is to risk something. You may well suffer for correcting such a person. But thankfully, there's another kind of invitee. And we're we're meant to see this individual and be drawn to this idea. The middle of verse 8, Reprove a wise man in contrast, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. Now let's think on that for a moment. Living with moral skill involves being teachable and correctable. I must be teachable and correctable. Wise people, those who live life skillfully in the fear of God, welcome proper rebuke, and they appreciate those who deliver it. Self-defensiveness is natural to all of us. But self-defensiveness is a telltale sign of spiritual immaturity. Wise people learn and grow when they are corrected, confronted, rebuked, or otherwise helped to align their lives with the truth. Now there's a lot that's unsaid here, of course. We can be rebuked in ways that are entirely inappropriate. And many times in the rebuke that we receive, our call from God is to stand our ground and to resist some rebuke. But there's the kind of rebuke, there's a kind of correction we bristle at because of our selfishness and our immaturity. That's what we need to define. And think through this. Proverbs 12.1 says, He who hates reproof is stupid. doesn't mean he can't pass the math test. But it means that that individual is unwise, not living skillfully. Proverbs 19.25 says, Reprove a man of understanding and he will gain knowledge. And we have the repeated admonitions throughout the book of Proverbs. Heed wisdom. Listen to my voice. There is a corrective word from outside that we all must face all the time. How do we respond to that corrective word? Do we have a teachable spirit And do we welcome, and even on some level, encourage insight from outside? Now, it seems to me then, in meditating on this passage, there's the other side of the coin. On the other side of the equation, we would have to conclude that those who gossip and those who harbor bitterness against someone that's harmed them that they've never addressed, they're also being morally foolish. Has someone offended you? Do you believe someone is living in moral folly before you? You're allowing it to make you bitter? 
Listen, if wise people learn from rebuke, then people who refuse to offer that proper rebuke are driven by something other than the fear of God. Living with moral skill includes the capacity to receive moral instruction and to appreciate it, which means that wisdom involves as well the capacity to lovingly confront wrong in others. People who live life skillfully do not spend their life in bitterness toward others. They don't spend their life watching other people live foolishly and gossiping about them. They get into the mix and wisely marshal truth in such a way that it is helpful and beneficial to others. Nobody's being called here to be a know-it-all. No one's being called here to set everybody straight. We endure much. We don't address every situation. But do we use truth in this way? That when it comes from the outside and it says to me, your life is out of line, I respond. Not defensively, but receptively. Seeking to hear in the counsel the Word of God and to align my life with what is right. If a doctor works on you and sets something in place that hurts, you don't punch him. You say, that hurt. But thank you. It's in place now. It's where it should be. And so it is with those who would help us align our lives morally with God's design. They're friends. It might be irritating. We might not want to hear it. But that's a friend. I need that counsel. We all need it. Because by nature, that's not how we respond to correction. So at the end of the day, people willing to accept instruction and those willing to properly give it share this in common. They fear God more than they respect man. That's the point of verse 10 as we come back to this central theme. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. This is where the instruction of Proverbs begins. Chapter 1 and verse 7. A reverential fear of God is the foundational principle in wise living and biblical discernment. As we've said throughout, if you do not fear God, you are living foolishly. You're making a mess out of your life. There's no other way to live than in the fear, the reverent fear of God. Apart from that, there's no reason to read the Proverbs. There's no reason to move anywhere. I mean, do, because God may shine light on it through the process. But without the fear of God, we have nothing. At the heart and the core of every spiritually mature person is a reverence for God. The knowledge of the Holy One is insight. We know that in knowing God, we see life as we should. And there are consequences. There are consequences. Verse 11, For by me, by wisdom, your days will be multiplied, and years will be added to your life. The concept behind the Hebrew is not so much the number of years one lives, but the quality of one's years. 
Real life is found in fearing God and nowhere else, and that life will spill into eternity. So by way of conclusion, we've seen the scoffer, we've seen the wise person and their distinct responses to wisdom and correction. Here's the conclusion, verse 12. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. This is not to say that our wisdom or our folly does not affect other people. It definitely does, and the book of Proverbs makes that clear. No one, here's the point, no one can steal your character, and you cannot pass it on. You can influence others, but you can't give them your character. We reap what we sow in life is another way to say this, verse 12. Fear God and you will reap life. You cannot give that away and you cannot lose it. Live foolishly and you will reap the consequences no matter how much others might pity you and no matter how much you might wish you could try over in life. If you are wise, it's for yourself. This is between you and God. If you scoff at God, you will bear the consequences. So, the invitation of wisdom, come to my dinner. This interlude, dealing with people who respond to wisdom's call, we now come to Lady Folly's invitation. Verse 13, in contrast to Lady Wisdom, the woman Folly is loud, she is seductive, and knows nothing. Like the prostitute of chapter 7, Lady Wisdom or Lady Folly is boisterous and devoid of God's truth. She does not care who she hurts. She does not care how she defies God. She's got a big mouth. The world preaches its message. It shouts it everywhere. Come to me. She too makes this appeal. Verse 14, she sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town right along with the attendance of wisdom. She's calling, verse 15, to those who pass by who are going straight on their way. Verse 16, we notice that her appeal is to the same morally naive audience. This is significant. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here, and to him who lacks sense, here's her message. But notice verse 16, compare it with verse 4. Lady Wisdom says, whoever is simple, whoever is morally naive, whoever is uncommitted to God, let him turn in here. And so, Lady Folly, the same message. Whoever is simple, naive, morally uncommitted, let him turn in here. There's an appeal to two banquets, two invitations competing here, calling for our attention. It's a quick aside here, but as you read the Bible, look for those kinds of things. Verse 4, this call to the simple, repeated in verse 16, the call to the simple. Two different voices, two identical invitations to the same individual. Note those connections. There's something significant here. What is Lady Folly saying? Verse 17. We know what Lady Wisdom has said in her invitation. Now notice Folly. Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. 
Stolen waters contrast with wisdom's mixed wine. And bread eaten in secret is contrasting with the meat that is provided by Lady Wisdom. Stolen waters here are undoubtedly sexual innuendo. Innuendo for illicit sex is described in 5.15-18. through 18. But the reference, I think, can be taken more broadly. Remember, there's this constant emphasis on sexual discipline. Stolen waters certainly are pointing that way, but not only that way. Folly offers the sweet delights of a godless lifestyle, whatever those sweet delights might be. And there is pleasure in sin for a season. There is. There are sweet delights in moral folly. Her house is alluring. She's attractive. She draws you in. She offers the thrill of doing your own thing, doing what comes naturally, doing what you want to do, seeing what you want to see, hearing what you want to hear, going where you want to go. It's all attractive. It's alluring. Stolen waters. Bread eaten in secret. But the truth of the matter is, as wisdom creeps in here, verse 18, he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. At the banqueting table of wisdom's home is a luxurious feast that brings only goodness. At folly's feast there is great allure, but her food is pure poison. Kidner calls this a, quote, shattering climax to the first nine chapters, and it is indeed that. Death is where Proverbs 1 through 9 ends. This is serious business. The life that you live is not given to you to squander, it's not a small thing. The life that you live can be a source of tremendous joy and blessing. The life that you live can be a pathway to death itself. You can destroy your life depending on which invitation you receive. Two invitations, two hostesses calling, appealing to us, two paths, two ways. Have you ever sat at a meal when this warm feeling comes over you and you just have this sense that everything is really, really good? The company that you're with puts you at peace and at ease. The place where you are is warm and inviting and comfortable. And the food that you're eating, you wish you had three stomachs. It's so good. And you just say, this is good. I don't know about you, but that's happened to me just a few times in life. No distractions, no worries. All is right. And this calm and satisfaction comes over you. I remember one situation distinctly. Several years ago, Beth and I were invited to a dinner at a restaurant in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And it's a really, really complicated story, and it was like a grade B miracle that we were invited to this place. 
But suffice it to say here that a generous friend paid for our meal in a restaurant way above anything we could ever touch in a large stone house built in the 18th century that served as a safe house for runaway slaves in the Civil War. I mean, I was in like almost the heaven here sitting in this situation, if you know me. You have to understand there's nothing quite like a crisp autumn eve after dark in the hills of Pennsylvania. And as a history lover who loves old stone houses with candles in the window, unlike you see anywhere around here, here we sat, it was in the house that this restaurant was, the restaurant had taken over the house. And you're sitting in this living room with a roaring fire, a real fireplace, not one of those electric things like you find at Culver's. But it's a real fireplace with real wood crackling on a real fire of stone. Wonderful food at no expense to us. There was no guilt at all in this meal. All of our worries half a continent away with good people surrounding us and that feeling hit me that unusual joy and peace washed over me i see that in ju- as just a taste of lady wisdom's feast she's saying i'll teach you to live and there will be a feast in my presence for the rest of your life And my emotions got nothing to do with Gettysburg. It's that by the grace of God, I'm at that feast. I didn't deserve to be at that meal, at that place, and I don't deserve to be at this one. But God in His mercy has invited me in. And it's good. And then if we could picture this and press it a bit far perhaps, but it's, it's like people sitting there in that place, a slow dinner. They actually cook the food while you wait. And they bring it out piece by piece, little by little, and it's a long ordeal. And you're sitting there eating this patiently, enjoying every minute of it. And you look out through the window... And there is Lady Folly, and she offers an unsuspecting kid the opportunity across the street to break into a candy store. I know we can get in. I know how we can get in. And the kid's really, really hungry, and he's looking inside there and go, there's every candy on earth that I've ever imagined. It's right in there, and we can slip in here. And Lady Folly says, I know the pattern of the police in Gettysburg. They aren't coming by here for another two or three hours. We can have our fill of candy. We can do this. And his heart's pumping wildly, and the excitement of the whole idea is there. And Lady Folly points to the people eating at the restaurant through the window and says, do you want to sit there all night in front of a fireplace? Those people are probably sweating. They're so hot, and they're sitting around waiting for their food. You don't want to go in there, but let's just get into this candy store. No one will know. No one will find us out. There will be no consequences. Join me, stolen, 
sweets are the best there are. And should wisdom look down upon that scene, what would wisdom say? Boy, don't do it. Don't be a fool. You don't know what you're missing in this restaurant. Come to my feast. It'll take time. You're going to have to be patient. But there are joys here that you'll never know with stolen candy in your mouth. Which dinner invitation have you chosen to accept? Our world parades out in front of us stolen waters all the time. Bread eaten in secret all the time. And we're enamored with that, attracted to it. It seems exciting. It seems to satisfy, but it satisfies like candy. A quick, sweet pleasure that goes away. Or the older you get, it doesn't go away, actually. It's got consequences. And the thing is, you will get caught. And there will be bitter fruit that is reaped. So moral wisdom and biblical discernment here in Proverbs 1-9 through presents itself to us again. It calls us to not be stuck at immaturity, but to respond to the maturity of God. And while I don't have opportunity here to review all of chapters 1-8, through just work your way through some of the highlights. It is a life, responding to wisdom's feast, is a life lived in the fear of God. There's no better way to live. It is to avoid friends that lead you astray from loving God with all of your heart. Not to say we don't know such people, not to say we don't seek to influence such people, but we're not drawn in and taken away from God by people who have no time for Him. To live wisely means to always be learning and digging for knowledge, coming to discern the mind of God and learning new ways. It means living in light of external revelation, not internal innate light. That I'm always responding to what God has said in His Word, aligning my life to the Word of God. It means living wisely, I see God's Word as my life. I don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. To live wisely means to have sexual discipline. You can't miss that in the book of Proverbs. To have respect for authority. To heed mother and father, meaning I know how to submit to authority. It means being willing to learn from rebuke and to be willing to give it rightly. It means to have a strong work ethic that refuses laziness and get-rich-quick schemes and is willing to labor for God under His grace and for His glory. And it is what chapters 10 through 31 are now going to unveil to us in little snippets, in short proverbs, telling us how to live. We need to learn to discern, thinking through these proverbs, learning to align our, li- our lives with them. They're like little tiny chiropractic adjustments that put us in order and line us up to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. But this feast, 
This feast of living that kind of a life is the most satisfying feast in this life. And for us here on this side of the cross, we know that this wisdom, this feast is found ultimately in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's saying there, I'm food, I'm drink. I provide a satisfaction that nothing else in this world can provide. I am the bread of life. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever, says Jesus. There's a banquet for our souls in knowing and walking with Christ. And it starts right where it does here in Proverbs. The picture's fuller. It's deeper. But it starts right here. It's turning from our path of sin and self-centeredness, our own wisdom and our own ways. It's turning from our sin to embrace the invitation of Christ. Come, eat of me, drink of me. You'll never hunger or thirst again. And it moves then from repentance, from turning from my own self-centered ways, my own ideas about personal salvation, to trust in His salvation. That one from outside came to this earth and laid down His life in the place of sinners, rising from the dead to provide forgiveness of sin. It comes down to saying that message, that history, and its, its meaning is at the core of who I am. It is my identity. And as we respond to that message in Jesus Christ, He becomes to us our wisdom. He helps us to discern truth from error, beauty from that which is ugly, wisdom from folly, life from death. He helps us to see it. He, externally, with His Word, becomes the light of life. Are you dining at that feast. The invitation is there. Have you responded? And is it clear to those around you that you are at that feast? Come. And if you have come, may we pause here as we bring this section of Proverbs to a close and thank God for His gracious invitation. Let's pray. Father, we do not deserve Your mercies to us in Christ. You have invited us to the feast not because of what we have done, who we are, or because we can benefit You, but You have invited us because You are the source of infinite pleasures and infinite provision. And You hold out Your hand in grace and say, come. All of us here who have come would admit and confess before You that we do not enjoy You as we should. 
we're attracted to the stolen candy. But we thank you, Father, that there is and we know a satisfying feast that will satisfy forever and forever. For those whose eyes have not been opened to see that truth, I plead that you'd open their eyes, that there would be response, that they would recognize there is a need to respond to a call that is external to me, that I'm not God, and that I've got to come to terms with who the Lord is, what He has done, how He has provided salvation, and the fact that He is the source of life and strength. Bring saving grace to this building today in the life of anyone who's separated from Christ we pray in your time according to your purposes Lord for those of us again who are dining with Christ we look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb and we know that every once in a while in our sin in our busyness in our folly You give us that glimpse of perfect fellowship. We long for it. Pray that you'd hasten the day and that you'd find us waiting and watching and faithful until then. Thank you for your grace. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.